mi gente, welcome to Peruvians of USA, the podcast where we share the diversity of the Peruvian immigrant experience. This is your host, Natalie Sofia, and this community was born from the need to create a space for Peruvian immigrants to come together, to support each other, to learn from each other, and to document our stories. The stories our guests share with us are deeply personal and paint a new portrait of what it means to be a Peruvian immigrant. I hope you receive these stories with an open heart and an open mind. So let's get started. If something resonates with you while enjoying our conversation, please be sure to share with us in social media using the hashtag Peruvians of USA. All right, here's our conversation. Welcome, Patricia Diaz, to Peruvians of USA. I am thrilled to have you here today. Please, Patricia, introduce yourself to the audience of Peruvians of USA. Yeah, first of all, I'm so excited to be here. My name is Patricia Diaz. I am a first-generation Latina and daughter of immigrants, and I feel like that has shaped really who I am, how I view the world, and what my purpose is within this world. So I'm originally from Peru. I moved to the U.S. when I was nine years old. And since then, my family has been living in the U.S. For many years, I lived in a predominantly white state. And that's also shaped (laughs) who I am and how I disconnected from my roots originally. I am also the founder of Latinos in Power, which is a platform where I share information and resources on various topics like financial health, career, civic engagement, all from the lens of a first-generation Latina lens. And really, it's about empowering the next generation to take, to take control and action towards change, um, changing their narrative, and really advocating for our community. Awesome. Yes. And I'm, I was trying to remember how I came across your platform. You know, uh, I started Bruins of USA in 2020 and I felt like there was like a burst of multiple platforms of different Peruvian Americans coming. And so I'm trying to remember how I came across yours, but I know once I did, I was like, oh my gosh, she's Peruvian. I need to have her on the show. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like 2020 was really, I mean, it provided people the stillness. Um, and the time to kind of figure themselves out and what they wanted to do. Yeah, so my platform definitely started in 2020. It, it gave me a reason to kind of, you know, get up every day, do that kind of thing, especially during the pandemic where everything was so uncertain. And I fell in love with it. I fell in love with like sharing my purpose, sharing my story with the world in a different way than I had I've done previously. Yeah. And so let's start sharing your story. Let's start with your Peruvian origins. So you came to the U.S. when you were nine years old. What do you remember about life in Peru or even that last day? Because so many of us are told that we're coming for vacation when we're not. <laughs> so I'm like, I'm always, I'm always, we're always lying a little bit. <laughs> so, so I'm always curious, why were you were told? Because I came when I was 10 years old. And again, I wasn't told I was going to stay here for life. <laughs> so um, yeah, tell us your story. Yeah, so... I uh, moved to when I was nine, and I feel like at that time, I knew that I was leaving the place I called home, but I didn't necessarily knew what that meant, really. So we, uh, I remember also bits and pieces, but the pieces I did remember, which is like saying goodbye to like my friends in school, you know, having our home be sold and seeing like different kinds of like furniture be sold in our house. And kind of just seeing that also get cleared away. Um, so little by little, we had that, we almost had like nothing except for our beds almost. I just remember people being like sad around me, but I didn't know what that meant. So then moving to to the country, I was like, okay, you know, this is, this is fun. Like 
we're meeting new people, we're meeting family here because, because fortunately we did have family um, here in the U.S. already, but that was it. Like that was, it was, it was like a smooth transition into just coming to the U.S. But then after that, I, I think it just hits you. It's like, oh, I'm here for a while. <laughs> like I'm getting, I'm getting registered at school. I start on Monday. Like, okay, so this is, this is legit. This is nothing like um, I expected it to be. And I also was just like, I thought maybe, maybe like yourself, it's just like, you just think that you're on vacation and, and that you'll go back eventually. Unfortunately for us, we were undocumented at that time as well until uh, my aunt who uh, is a citizen in the U.S. She was the one that um, you know, claims us or whatever uh, the status is. So we could get our status here as residency. But during that time, I also, because uh, it takes <laughs> many, as, as many people know, it takes years and years, it took 13 years for my family. So for that time, we were undocumented. So I also didn't realize that we couldn't go back home if we wanted to. Right. Wow. Yeah, no. And, and in Peru, were you in Lima or where, where did you grow up? Oh. Yeah, so we grew up in Lima, Magdalena del Mar. So we were always right by the ocean. We live, we live my parents, my grandparents um, live about three or five blocks from the ocean. So it's like really just like almost like a walk or a jog there and back. Nice. Oh my God. Yeah. When you say, when you said Magdalena, I was like, yeah, that's by the water. <laughs> that's yeah. that, that's like the most of my memories come from. It's just yeah. being at the beach all the time mm-hmm. and spending time with like our grandparents at the beach or just close by. Um, so those are like the fondest memories I have from mm-hmm. Peru. Mm-hmm. It's just the beach just because we live so close to it. Yeah. So you mentioned on the, you know, as on the forum that you moved to a predominantly, uh, uh, you know, white, uh, state or city town how was that how was that culture shock for you did you go through that culture shock how was it in school because I know for me I was coming from being a very good student in Peru to like being to feeling completely stupid like I'm just going to put it in my little little yeah. word like a 10 year old word which I felt really stupid because I, I just didn't understand anything and my favorite subject was math because <laughs> math is the universal language. <laughs> so tell us, like, what was that? <laughs> yeah, I feel the same. To be honest, I was, I was a hardworking student in Peru, but also I would say that I struggled with school at times, specifically math. Mm. So I remember I, I would have a math tutor in Peru mm. um, who would call me like on the weekends to help me out with my math homework, and I'd really struggle um, with that. However, when you move to a country and I didn't speak English prior to yeah. being so moving to a country where the language is not your own and then you're now sitting in a classroom for eight hours five days a week doing the bare minimum because you can't really do the homework or anything I think math became my sanctuary like that was two plus two is four everywhere and even though I struggled with math previously I was just like this is the only thing that I can do so I put my all of my effort into being the best in math because I knew all the other subjects I just couldn't do by myself and I'm also a very stubborn maybe this is also for me very stubborn like very trying to be independent and I just couldn't be that at that young age now, there was a, a, another student who spoke Spanish in my classroom. So we were the only two out of like the classroom of 30 kids who speak Spanish, but he was also nine years old, right? And I think at that time, it's also kind of embarrassing to speak 
another language to somebody or do you just don't think it's cool so even though he was supposed to help me quote unquote he was actually like embarrassed to help me and you know would translate super quickly and things like that so it was just more of like it was me and my own thoughts almost yeah because like you hear people around you you hear and everybody's kind of moving around you kind of doing things but you're just kind of within yourself and your thoughts like all alone during those eight hours yeah so did your school have ESL or have other resources? Because I'm thinking, fortunately, the school that I went to had resources for students who didn't speak English. Um, but if you're in an area where there are very few immigrants from other, like from other countries, then, you know, maybe the school does not have as many resources for those students. So there was an ESL program and this teacher there were almost volunteer. Oh. So, so I would go to ESL class maybe three hours a week okay so it was very scattered yeah and I would say for I mean for somebody who's there for eight hours like for five days a week really three hours out of it is nothing so a lot of it was just like I said within you know within myself and my own thoughts and going home um we used to live with my aunt so and her kids and you know her husband would speak English so at least, and they would help us like with our homework and things like that. So I did have some help at home, mm -hmm. um, but for the most part, uh, the, I feel like the ESL classes were just going there, learning a little bit, and then you're back in that same environment. Mm. Yeah. So one of the store, one of the reels that you posted that I really enjoyed, and I, uh, I think it's a common theme across all like daughters of immigrants <laughs> families, and like the the song of uh, surface pressure from the movie Encanto. Uh, are you the oldest in your family? Are you the oldest daughter? Yes, okay. I am the oldest daughter. <laughs> okay. And so how was that experience for you? Because I'm assuming you, you didn't speak English come in. I didn't either. My parents didn't either. I'm assuming your parents didn't either. And we're put in this role where now we are sort of like the messenger for our parents, right? So our parents live in this world and we're like the messenger back and forth. And tell us about that experience before I share my, like, sort of my own trauma around it. <laughs> Your, your experience like how first of all what are some what were some of your res responsibilities <laughs> and then how yeah. you started to process that later on yeah so I think it's kind of interesting looking back at it um just because at that time I thought it was very normal I thought other kids also did things that I did um or maybe I was like unaware of how much I would do for my family that other people didn't do. And, you know, especially at that age, at nine years old, um, being the connection to the real world, like your family to the real world is kind of interesting to take. Like my responsibilities, specifically as the oldest daughter, I would remember we would fill out for, I would fill out my registration to register myself and my sister for school. I would translate um, for my parents anywhere. It would be whether it be at the store, whether it be during parent-teacher conference, whether that be at the doctor's appointment for myself or for my parents or when they were sick, or translating different documents for them, calling up, you know, the uh, the phone, uh, the phone lines or whatever, like bills anytime that they needed to pay or they needed to call. I used to pretend that I was my mom. <laughs> Just like, oh yeah, and you could tell that obviously, I mean, my voice also even now doesn't sound like somebody older but at the time they could definitely tell I was not my mom but you know they went along with it they didn't they they didn't care um so those kinds of things that I 
like I said, I thought it was normal. I thought other kids also did the same, like filling out applications, those kinds of things. And I didn't know the amount of responsibility I was taking at that time, especially at that young age and what that meant later on. I think it's good being a daughter of immigrants because you're also very resourceful at a very young age. You find ways to figure things out because you also don't have the knowledge yourself and your parents don't have the knowledge of, style, of, of navigating different spaces, different rooms, different situations. So from that experience, I feel like I'm very thankful because now, you know, I'm very resourceful. And if I can't figure something out, I just know I'll figure it out eventually or, you know, trying different things, asking for help, whatever the case is. But that at that time, and even maybe during high school, I was just like, oh, maybe that's also during high school when I realized, oh, there's something different here. I am not the same as the others, not only for my background, because I was predominantly white state, but also because of the different tasks that I was doing for my family. Yeah. I, I also was put in that position of, you know, being the translator everywhere uh, with doctors, parent-teacher conferences, calling up, you know, the phone, the, the customer service line for bills, trying to help them open a bank account or a credit card. I even remember going to the tax accountant with my dad. And that's when I first got exposure, like as a 12 year old, something got exposure to Texas and what that is. And I remember, I think there was a time where I couldn't translate a word and my parents got upset. And I was like, this is not even a 12 year old word. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Or my mom, my mom would be like, well, why did we send you to school then? Yeah. Like, you can't translate this. It's like, well, no, I'm <laughs> <laughs> or they'll oh, be like, haven't even thought about this before. Yeah, they'll be like, but I guess I'm less English and tosses, and I'll be like, oh my God. But I get the mando Yeah. Yeah. So, um, yeah, no. And I agree with you. It does make us very resourceful. It makes us have that ability to ask questions because we have no other choice, right? Like, we have no other choice but to ask those tough questions and trying to understand. However, when you got to college or when you were navigating that process, how I, I know you mentioned earlier that your family was undocumented. It took like about 13 years for, for all the uh, petition to be processed. So that took you to what? Past high school or I'm assuming? Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Past high school. Uh, I bought it my second or third year of college. Okay. And so how did you navigate? And this is pre-DACA or during DACA? Yes, it was pre-DACA. Wow. So how did you navigate college? Because I have... So I have family who now, fortunately, they have DACA, but, you know, the question always comes up, like, should I go to college? You know, there's no guarantee that I will be able to work or ejercer mi carrera, right? Like work in yeah. whatever you study. Yeah. What, what was your thought process during that time? Not really knowing. Yeah. So I think, I mean, my family moved to the U.S. for many reasons. Obviously, Peru is a very unstable economy, unstable country on its own, and you can only progress so far. So what my family, you know, thought of is I want my kids to have a better education, my, you know, myself and my sister. And so that was like the main reason my family moved here. And then when, you know, as you get closer to graduating, you're like, I know the goal is to go to college. I also know I'm undocumented, pre-DACA. How do I get there? I know that's the end goal. What are the steps to get there? And I remember even sophomore or yeah, sophomore year, we were meeting with our high school counselor and I was really excited about it because I was like, okay, maybe she can help me, you know, navigate this kind of space and ask her questions and things like that. And even my parents took the day off. And I remember very clearly we're walking into the counselor's office and she has never met me before. But I also go to the predominantly white, you know, white um, high school. 
So she also hasn't dealt with other Latinos previously. As soon as we walk through the door, she asks, like, are you undocumented? Or like not even asking my name, not even asking anything, literally looks at me and my parents and says, are you undocumented? Wow. And I was just like, wow. Okay, she's not going to be the one to help us yeah. um, navigate this. You know, she already has some preconceived notion of Latinos and things like that. And then yeah. the next thing she says is like, because if you are, you won't be able to go to school here or go to, you know, go to college. And I pretended like I didn't know what she was talking about. And she's like, oh, no, you know, no, I'm not, I'm not commenting, blah, 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 just to give me the information. Yeah. But I think walking out of there, we very much knew that we weren't going to get any help with from her. And right. then therefore it became, you know, my plan to take action uh, myself. So I remember my, my parents, you know, we would go to all these events that we would hear like online about different universities holding info sessions and things like that. And we met somebody uh, who I still remember like today who really was just like, oh yeah, you're, you know, my mom would like, she spoke Spanish. So we were, felt very comfortable with her and she and she's like, oh, you're undocumented. That is totally fine. Like the state of Utah is able to, people are able to go to school if they meet the certain criteria. And I said, okay, you know, we looked over through the criteria. You have to be in the U.S. for so long. You have to attend and graduate, you know, high school from this, uh, from the state, et cetera, et cetera. And I was like, okay, so I meet all of this. Then that means I can attend school. And um, so what does that mean now? So then afterwards, I started to apply. She was the one that kind of walked us through everything. How to sign up for school, how to uh, apply for college, how to even apply for scholarships, what scholarships were available to um to Hispanic. And at that time, I also, because I hadn't really seen any other Hispanics um, at that time, I also felt like I myself wasn't Latina. Like (laughs) when you kind of grow up in a place where you just don't see Latinos, you kind of try to assimilate into the culture. So I even didn't think I was Latina enough to even apply for the scholarship. And that was like a whole other thing. Yeah. Um, But after that, I was like, okay, like she was really the guiding force into me getting into college, me getting scholarships as well, because as much as my parents want me to go to school, I very much knew we couldn't afford it. <laughs> um, just like any other, like any other parent, like immigrant parents, right? my parents were flowing jobs. And I also wanted to live on campus, you know, kind of live the, <laughs> live the college life everybody kind of dreams of. And my parents were like, okay, well, you have to get scholarships for sure. And I got my first full year covered by the school. But then, you know, the, the housing and everything else kind of came to my parents and my parents worked three to three jobs each to even like do that. The second year though, after that, they said, oh, by the way, um, there's a new law. And this was also a little bit before DACA came out. And they said, there's a new law that you can't, that if you are undocumented, you cannot receive state funding for your scholarships, things like that. And I was just like, oh crap. So I had my first year fully paid and the scholarship also applied for half a year the next year and I was just like is this gonna get taken away now like what does this mean I met with all these like school lawyers all of a sudden I was like in front of like different scholarship um people different senior people within the college to try to figure out what that meant and I was just like fighting like fighting to get my scholarship fully funded because I was like this law came into effect x date by that time, I had already signed a contract with the university, you know, through, and that was like a year prior. So to me, it made sense that they would still honor the scholarship. Mm-hmm. 
and with everybody. And I just remember meeting lawyer after lawyer after like talking to different people from the university, just trying to figure it out. And at the end, they were like, okay, fine, we'll honor it. Um, because you're right, it did, you know, you did sign this and it, the law came into effect afterwards. But for your other scholarships, since they were yearly, you just don't get it. Wow. So I moved back home. Obviously, we couldn't, you know, we, if we couldn't afford the housing prior, if my parents had to work, you know, X amount of uh, jobs, they, we could definitely not afford it now that my scholarship was cut in half and all, like everything else. And back home, I started to commute to, to school. Like, I was like, I'm still trying to live a normal life and also hiding it from people. Because at that time, you know, being undocumented, you just don't, didn't hear people mention it. It was really like a subject that nobody wanted to touch on or keep it hidden. Because you know, you didn't know what that meant, or people didn't know what that meant, and also you didn't know they would have like some malicious intent or something like that. So you never shared it with any of your friends while you were in college. No. Wow. I think they they just barely found out when I opened the page. <laughs> when I opened Latinos in Power, it's like when they were like, "Oh, this kind of makes sense." <laughs> yeah. And and how long was your commute from home to your university? I would say about an hour yeah. each way. Yeah. So it wasn't like too terrible. I would take the train fairly early in the morning, depending on when class started, but I would take early morning classes yeah. and stay on campus all day and then travel back home um, like around six or something. Did you ever fall? I mean, this question might be tough to answer or I don't know. Like, did you ever fall into like um, a place of like, is this worth it? Like, there's so many obstacles in front of me. Is this worth it? Because so many people can have experienced that, right? And like, there could be someone in the audience that it's right now in that situation where there's just like obstacle after obstacle and you're on the other side now. Like, what got you yeah. through it? At that time, I don't think I, I really knew what got me through it. It was more like, wake up every day. This is, consist this is something that's consistent in your life, really. Probably my family also. Yeah. I mean, don't tell me you're talking about it. Yeah. But probably my family. Yeah. Yeah. I think family definitely help us get through it. Our parents can't give us everything they want to give us. Right. Yeah. But the stability that they're able to provide for us, you know, sometimes it's, it's, it's a lot. It's a lot. And I see that. And I hope, uh, you know, and I'm getting emotional as well because I know that parents feel like, oh, they give them todo, todo lo mejor. And, and I'm like, you know what? Sometimes the best you can give is really love, understanding, patience, and a stability and stability in your home. So, yeah. And so you graduated. So, so you got yeah. through it. You yeah, graduated. Yeah, anyway. You graduated. It was kind of funny because literally I went that one year gap without any scholarships or anything like that. And then there was like a point where we got our petition and it says, okay, like your process is actually starting. So from that point on, I was like, okay, like we got a residency. Obviously I'm making it seem very simple, but uh, for, those out there, for those out there who are going through, through it, if they obviously know how long the process takes and even afterwards, it doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to get it right. You have to go through different interviews. You have to go through medical checks. You have to pay an expensive, <laughs> crazy amount. But it was just that one year gap. And maybe also that's what helped me get through it. I knew our stuff was in process and it was just more of a waiting game, right? And I feel like I was very lucky in that regard because I know there are people who don't have it as, as easy as I did. And even though my journey was very tough, 
it doesn't compare. I had like a, I had a light at the end of the tunnel and mm-hmm. that was the light mm-hmm. is that we were in the process of it and we were getting closer to the process and my dad would check our, our status like daily almost. Yeah. So once, so literally it came a year later, I was able to apply for scholarships again. I was able to get those scholarships and continue with my life. But that whole year, I think in between, it was just really unknown. Like I just didn't know how to navigate either. Yeah. And so during that year, how did you fund your education during that time? My parents literally worked not only three to four jobs, but also would just take random jobs here and there. Like somebody would say, hey, there's a, you know, we're going on a trip to, to go clean a house or go clean a store, I don't know, an hour from here. Are you interested? And my parents would be like, yeah, okay, it's overnight. Do you still want to do it? My parents like, yeah. And they would just take random jobs. My dad worked as a dishwasher. My dad worked as a cook. Like all these, you know, my mom the same. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Man. I mean, props to, and that's why when anybody, when I see Latinas, Latinos, Latinx, just graduating, like I hope, help the whole family celebrate. I hope you also allow your parents to celebrate with you because it's really like a family effort. Like it's not just a one person's effort. Yeah. I mean, Props to your parents, like for being amazing and, and helping you through that process, because like so many don't have that level of support. So I'm really happy that your parents were there for you. But I definitely want to touch on like your career and money journey as well, because your platform, actually, before we get into that, let's start with uh, Latinos Empower. So you are also the founder of Latinos Empower, which you mentioned started in 2020. What, tell me about the birth of this idea. Like what started this and sort of what has been the biggest lesson you learned? Yeah, so definitely started during pandemic. A lot of people started a pandemic project, you could say. Um, but like I said earlier, it, the pandemic really provided me the stillness, the quietness needed to also ask myself what kind of questions were like, what kind of legacy do you want to live, like leave? What is your purpose in this world? And I definitely got into a lot of like, especially reading um, in our backyard. Like in our home, um, in our backyard, I would like read just different books also just to get my mind out of all everything that was kind of going around. Obviously, you couldn't leave home for quite a while. There was like shut down here and there. And it's just like, okay, I don't, I've never been still because also as a daughter of Latina, like <laughs> daughter of immigrants, I feel like you're always on the go. Like you're always trying to move and make things happen for yourself, for your family. And having that still there, I feel like that, that specifically since I moved to the U.S. didn't happen. So that was like one thing. Then I started reading books, especially autobiographies, um, Michelle Obama, Steve Jobs, that like, you know, just like thinking about the legacy again. He's like, okay, what do I want to do? And, and also it became, our, it was also around the time when obviously our previous president, um, Donald Trump, you know, was running, uh, was running again. And what is that? What did that mean? I felt like when he got elected, we kind of lost our voice a little bit as a community or we were looked at as lesser than or judged by the way we looked. And I was just like, what, how does my voice fit into this picture? How do I want to raise my voice for our community or help, you know, guidance or have all these, all these lived experiences, you could say that it could help others as well. So how do I bring that about? And I think one day, you know, I was in the, in the backyard and my, and I come like casually come inside. I was like, I think I just want to start like an Instagram platform. Just, you know, see, I was like, I just want to help Latinos in any way, shape, or form. I want to share my lived-in experience in a way that's also very empowering for others, but empowering for myself. And that's how I really started. I was just like, okay. I also was at the time when I was near vacation for my from work. And I was like, 
I'll just take this week or two weeks off to kind of get it started or start doing research, what I wanted to be named, what, you know, what I want to say, what, what kind of platform I want to launch. And I took those two weeks and then afterwards I just didn't look back. That's awesome. And so what are, what are some of the, um, like what has been like the highlight so far in this like year and a half or so of, uh, empowered, uh, for you. And then also like the biggest lesson of like managing this platform, creating content, because you're very good with the reels. <laughs> I definitely, I definitely enjoy the reels. You know, you create content and you, and your content varies from like career advice to like financial literacy to a variety of things. Right. So how. Yeah. So like what has been the highlight and what has been sort of like the lesson you have taken taken so far? I feel like the highlight has been the community. So given I was in the state where I didn't see other Latinos until probably about high school. And even during that time, they didn't consider me Latina. I certainly didn't consider myself Latina. Having that community of people around me and feeling like I could share experiences I had never shared with others. And people could relate. I think that was, has been the highlight for me because I just didn't, I just didn't have that growing up. And I didn't know if it was just my experience, my thoughts. Um, and a lot of what I share is like, people are like, oh yeah, this has happened to me too. Or this is how I felt, or this is how I thought at the time going through these challenges. Or sometimes I feel like you just kind of get in your head and you start thinking like, maybe this is all me, like internally speaking to myself or interpreting my situation this way. You know, we talk about generational trauma, but at the time I didn't know there was generational trauma. Um, you know, I was just thought, I thought it was something, maybe I was suffering with my mental health or something like that. Right. And then when somebody's like, no, I've gone through the same thing because I've also done X, Y, Z, you know, I've also been the eldest daughter of immigrants. And I was like, wow, like <laughs> I love sharing those kinds of stories because I didn't know how much people could relate. And people, I also love that people are so actively sharing their own experiences. So I'm learning along with them in a way. I also like that I share things that I've never shared before because I was very uncomfortable with it. Emotionally, mentally, even some of the things like that I share, my parents are like, I've never heard you like say that. <laughs> you know, now I'm just like, maybe it's all, it was all in my head kind of thing, you know? So that has been the highlight. I feel like a lot of things that what I've learned is that's a little bit tougher. Uh, I would say... The main thing that I've learned is that there's a lot of good people out there trying to do, trying to do the same with their community, trying to advocate for our community, trying to unite as a community for a particular goal, trying to raise their voice and use their voice, their action for, towards change. Um, and I feel like that's also empowering because previously I just feel like maybe we were living in a very different time where people couldn't advocate for different things. DACA definitely helped a lot of people come out of the shadows and really express how it is to be undocumented in this country. What's the struggles people go through that I could definitely not share, you know, earlier on. So just like joining this community of people that are also raising their voice is pretty cool. I would never thought I would get to get to that. And then also just sharing my own experience with like money and what that means and how that who I am and how I view the world because obviously my parents were low income. So how did that impact us? And how did that almost our lives revolve around money? How yeah. that impacts me today? Sharing things like career, like what does it feel like being the only Latina in many of these rooms and how are, and how I can take action to bring others along with me? Yeah. So let's touch on the money story because that's something that I definitely align with you on. And as I mentioned earlier, I think it's something that I'm trying to 
get our community to talk more about because many of us are the first in our families who make six figures. Yeah. And as great as that sounds and as wealthy as others could say, think that makes us, we're not only creating wealth for ourselves and it's not even just for future generations, we're also looking back. So we have to look to our parents, we have ourselves. And then if you want to form a family, you're also looking forward, right? So it's like, <laughs> and this is that sort of where I'm also at. Like, how do you carry that or how do you learn to manage money and handle that pressure of carrying that for three generations, right? And so tell us about your money story. And, I'm, and your money story, I'm assuming, begins, you know, prior to, I mean, I think for many first daughters, begins before college uh, because we're so young and we're exposed to those conversations at a very early age. But how does your interest in communicating, or I don't want to say promoting, but I guess educating your, your audience and your community on your money journey and like making good decisions with money, how, how did you started to become interested in that? And, and what was your journey like? How did you educate yourself in that area? Yeah, so definitely growing up, my parents were working low-income jobs. And we were also in like free, free lunch at school because we couldn't afford it. I feel like that just set for the conversations to be daily about money, how we're going to budget, you know, putting things um, to work in terms of work, in terms of paying our mortgage, in, in terms of like putting food on the table. And I was very much involved in those conversations. Um, my parents definitely didn't keep anything out for us to not hear or things like that. And it was discussed at the kitchen table every single day. So even though we saw that and we were able to be very transparent with my, my parents were very transparent with their money, it also meant that money really controlled our lives. If, if I was very much aware about money before probably I needed to be. I remember one, one story that I actually was thinking of sharing with my community is basically meeting a $100 calculator for algebra, like in, in, in chair high. And the teacher just said, you know, on Monday, you guys just need to bring the calculator. And I went home and I was like, holy cow, even before I asked my parents, you know, can we afford this? I already knew the answer. I already knew we couldn't afford to spend a hundred dollars on a calculator. A hundred dollars was so expensive for us that, you know, so I told my parents, my parents said, yes, we can't afford it at this time. And we'll, we'll try to, we'll try to figure out something, you know, something else. Or can you borrow a calculator? I talked to the teacher and she said, yes, you can borrow my calculator until you, you know, until your parents can afford it. I went to school that Monday. I was the only one in class who didn't have a calculator. So, and somebody flat out said to me, like, well, your parents can afford it. And I was just like, no, they cannot. <laughs> so being aware of that growing up, knowing that we couldn't afford college and I'm not so graduating, uh, graduating with an offer to a really huge investment bank and starting to make more than my parents, even as soon as I graduated was very much intimidating for me you almost feel guilty in a way for making so much not by doing so little because obviously you are contributing your labor to get that money but not as the hard labor as your parents would so I feel like I also had to differentiate the two in a way because that guilt did come and even still does as I continue to make more money than my parents double the money sometimes than my parents had back then and then navigating to figure out like okay I'm putting on all these financial foundations for myself. I know my parents just barely started to get a retirement once they started to get a better job. What does that also mean 
for me? How am I going to enable them to be in a good place to be retiring? And also my parents kind of like downplay it in a way. It's like, no, we'll be fine in retirement. Like we'll figure it out. That's the years away. But it's something that first generations have to think about. You are sometimes your parents' retirement. So, and then you're also trying, like you said, trying to set foundations for yourself, trying to set foundations for the future. I definitely didn't know what a 401k was when I, when I first joined. Uh, I knew my money was going towards it, but I viewed it as taxes, really. Like I did not know what a 401k was because my parents never had one. So setting those kinds of foundations became key for me to at least educate myself on a few things and even seeing how to manage my money on my own, being also very transparent with my parents about how much I made, which I know some people are against or some people, you know, but I was just like, you helped me get here. Why would I not share how your contribution helped me make X or whatever the case was? That That's definitely a tough conversation or a tough, tough decision for everybody to make, right? Because I think... Sometimes I, well, in the past, I've used this analogy, not, not actually to the community at Peru's of USA, but in conversation with other first gens is that many of us are, it, it's almost like if you, I'm not a basketball person, but this is how I see it. I'm like a pro athlete, right? Pro athletes are drafted and they have, they, they sign a contract with large amount of money, right? But then there's their family who's kind of very supportive, but for some of them, they could be also taken advantage of, right? By the family member now, like the cousins say like, hey, buy me this or like, et cetera. And so I think sometimes there are situations where we could be in that situation with our family. I'm not saying our parents necessarily, but within our family. So it is, it is sensitive to, to share that. And the only reason I bring that up is because I've been in a position where one, I did share and then the other where I chose not to. And so... It's, but it doesn't mean like, you know, in my own situation, I don't share, but I do share what I'm able to afford, what I'm able to help them with or not. Right. So it's, it's a really interesting topic anyway. Like I just kind of went off on the tangent there. No, it's, it's interesting because you just, you also don't want to rub it in people's faces or have it be taken wrongly or just presumir. Yeah. Um. I, I feel like also sometimes even just going to college, getting an education makes it seem like you are in a way trying to be better than others and, or some people take it as such. And then it becomes a very negative conversation. Like I've had a lot of family members who's like, okay, do you think you're better than me now? Because you go to, you know, you have a good job and you it's like, no, I don't, um, one, because also because money has played such a big part in my life. And I actually studied economics and finance in school because I, because I really resonated with that and how that really affected me. I mean, I wanted to learn more about money and how it affects the economy, how it affects people. But at the same time, it's like, no, I, I actually do not care about money whatsoever. Obviously, that also sounds very privileged <laughs> when you say, hey, I don't care about money because it used to be something I really cared about you know, um, earlier, earlier years. Yeah. You mentioned, you know, you learn how to, how to set those financial foundations for yourself. Let's talk about that. Like briefly, I know this is not meant to be necessarily a episode focused just on money, but uh, I do want to start yeah, helping the audience develop that language and start listening to them and not being scared of these terminologies because it's, you know, like many of us learned English which is, was a whole new language and really so much of uh, finance is just learning a new language. So what are some of those financial foundations that you have set up for yourself or for your family? So yeah, I think 
what is key is really understanding the different accounts that you can have to empower yourself, whether it be in the short term or the long term. So having a checking account obviously is key in being part of the financial system, but also ensuring, for example, that you are considering your short-term goals and writing those down. What do you want to accomplish with your money? Whether that be, and that can be whether you want to buy a house, whether you want to go on vacation, whether you want to also, you know, save for retirement and then your long-term goals as well, right? Naming those, how, how does that kind of be looking like in the future? And I feel like once you have those goals written down, being like, okay, these are the type of accounts I need. For example, if I need a short-term goal or more like an emergency fund, which I would definitely highlight people getting, um, because that can get you through really rough times. And we have seen those during the pandemic, especially people didn't know how to navigate uh, all these different challenges because they never, you know, they didn't have an emergency fund saved up. So having a high yield savings account, you know, in, in putting your emergency uh, fund there and then also figuring out, okay, I am, uh, do I even have a 401k through my, through my employer? If I don't, what are some other ways for me to contribute to, to my retirement? Saving is key, but investing is hierarchy, you could say, um, because that really is what takes you up a notch and putting your money to work in ways saving cannot do, and it's not enough for you. So learning about these different accounts, Roth IRA, you know, uh, traditional IRA, 401k, all of those kinds of things. What are some of those ways that you can contribute up to them? How can you open up an account? Where you can open up an account? I feel like those are critical and that's tough at the same time because it's not a conversation that you can also bring up to your parents because you, like we said, like you, you are the first one in your, in your community sometimes to be setting up those goals. So and there's so many resources now also. I feel like at the time when I was kind of navigating this, I just didn't know the resources that were available to me. And I feel like even every single day, I'm still setting up financial foundations for myself just based on things that I'm learning. There's so many accounts through Instagram. There's so many accounts through TikTok. There's so many sources out there that can help you do this and make it feel like you're not alone in this journey because there's many of us who are going through the same thing of trying to finance their the life for themselves and the life of their parents and you know for future and really building generational wealth but oh so you know you can ask around i feel like before maybe money and the money subject was something people didn't touch on and now people are very much comfortable for some i would say and they even sharing it with the world that you can just learn from and they're doing so in a language that everybody can understand which i love so what are some of your favorite resources that you would, if you can think of them. <laughs> yes, yes. I, I feel like Google is a friend to anybody. If you ever hear a financial term, there is going to be one thing out there that you can just easily find that will explain it in a way that you understand. There, you know, not everything is available to us. It's just more also figuring out what to Google. I feel like that is the hardest part, you know, but if you hear a word you don't understand, what is the four one thing? Uh, you would just, you know, Google it, pop it up. I would also say I started to listen to different podcasts, um, you know, as I'm getting ready, these kinds of things, just to figure out what else should be on my mind in terms of financial foundations, in terms of finance, learning more about the economy, all that kinds of thing. So I'm a huge podcast person, whichever podcast, um, you know, you listen to. I also follow various financial accounts just on Instagram who I can relate to because there's also a lot of information for people that can be catered. 
you know, if, if I usually try to follow Latina uh, finance account because I feel like other, other accounts just don't resonate with me. They don't understand the struggle of Latinos and money and that relationship and how difficult that relationship can be. They don't understand about generational trauma and how that impacts uh, how we view the financial system. Yeah, it just doesn't resonate as much with me. Uh, there are some accounts that I follow that maybe like I can get some additional guidance for, but for the most part, I literally just follow Latina accounts and ensuring that at least I'm also part of the conversation. You know, if somebody is explaining something through reels, through their IG content that I do not understand, messaging them offline like through DMs or asking questions through comments, I feel like that is also a way for you to get instant response at times or to your questions and to, instead of just like doing the work for your, like yourself. Now we live in a time where we're able to share knowledge so easily. So um, <laughs> definitely, you know, to the audience, use those resources, but also be mindful of who you're following and what uh, they're trying to sell you. <laughs> so yes, for sure. I use critical thinking for sure. So I do want to touch on your career as well. You mentioned you graduated with an offer to, I believe you spent an investment bank, an investment banking. That's amazing. <laughs> First of all, congratulations. Um, Thank you. And IB or investment banking is uh, a very tough career. You know, it's, uh, I, I haven't worked in an investment banking, but I used to be a consultant. I'm a former consultant. And I remember everybody used to be like, in terms of like stress level, it was like investment banking, consulting, and then like everything else, which I'm like, okay, maybe. Cause I think teacher is above that, but okay. <laughs> so tell us about working in investment banking, like, and you being Latina, you know, there's not a lot of women in that field still, still. So how was that transition from college to, to Yeah. So, so work for investment bank, but I'm more on their finance division. Now I would say that the, the, you mentioned that it was like very stressful. I would say that's, that's as high also <laughs> in terms of a different, uh, in terms of like your, when you're comparing different industries in college, what I would say if people are interested in entering finance and really the finance industry is not only taking classes that are relevant to it, but also networking, really joining clubs that your university has any. In my particular university, I had a finance club and I was able to attend because also my family didn't come from a back corporate background. And I was able to attend and you know, learn about finance, learn how to network, learn about the different financial companies, things like that. So that made my transition a little bit easier, but definitely not all the way because as you mentioned, you almost have a double hitter in that not only are you Latina, but you're also a woman in finance. And you just don't see representation of women at all. But then also adding Latina to it, you just, there, there wasn't any. Um, I was the only Latina in the floor almost for about 150 people. I was the only Latina. <laughs> so that's like puts it into perspective in a way where I just felt almost like I stuck out into sore thumb. But at the same time, I had already been in that situation previously, given where I lived. So maybe that made it a little bit easier for myself, but necessarily having transitioned into corporate America, you also learn that you cannot stay quiet. You cannot uh, not advocate for yourself. You have to raise your hands and put yourself continuously out there, um, which I can not do so earlier in my career. I really, maybe it's the art soul, our culture to let your, the work speak for your, for itself. And if you're doing the work and putting your hat down, somebody will see it. And that was something that I thought was going to get me far in, in, in my career. And when I realized it didn't, and when I realized others uh, around me were getting opportunities that I wasn't, even though 
I thought I was more hardworking, smarter, whatever the case is. That's when I think I also changed my aspect and my perspective towards how I should be viewing the type of work that I do and how I should be advocating for myself. And it's like almost as learn as you go. I'm really because you don't have anybody, anybody else to help you along with that. I was actually talking to one of my colleagues uh, last month and she had mentioned that she had gone to the ho- home for the holidays and her and her aunt was a managing director in a finance company. And I was like, wow, to have somebody, a resource like that in your home to ask questions, um, you know, as you're navigating these types of spaces that are, it's new for everybody, right? Nobody really enters, you know, a financial industry or even an investment bank knowing everything. And, but having that resource at home where you can ask questions where you can ask them how to navigate different situations, different problems. How can you best train yourself to be the best, you know, in in your position, things like that. I definitely did not have it at home. And then it really came to, again, using my resourcefulness that I had learned as a a daughter of immigrant and how I was going to bring that in. But I would say if you are kind of entering those spaces, definitely be aware that you have to change your perspective of how you navigate those spaces and be comfortable advocating for yourself continuously. <laughs> you know, you should never stop focusing on that because that really becomes key whether you make a certain position or not. And that's, I know that sounds really tough or really uh, like tough conversations to have within yourself and within, within other uh, communities and things like that. But it's like you, that's what you've got to do in these situations. Yeah. So I definitely, um, I you know, I agree that we need to advocate for ourselves more than than we than we are, and definitely more than we think we should. Because it, it's, I think, also in our culture, there's there's a value to humility, right? Like <laughs> value, we value humility a lot, and advocating for yourself does not feel humble, <laughs> right? Yeah, it's like the opposite. <laughs> so. What would be something, a concrete ways that you would give the audience of abdicated those, uh, for themselves in the, in the workforce? Some of the ways that I have incorporated that into my life, because like I said, I wasn't very good at it. And it also cost me a promotion a couple of years ago, uh, which made me change my perspective is I started writing things down that I did, whether it was something you know, I did X, Y, Z, I contributed to this project. I led this project. I, you know, the team was able to contribute to this calculation, to this report, whatever the case is. And maybe I wasn't able to express that verbally, but maybe I felt a little bit comfortable at the very beginning. I'm doing so via email. So I would say, you know, Hey, I did this, you know, just wanted to get that on your radar, that kind of thing. And that helped me view it maybe take it step by step. So if somebody wants to advocate for themselves and it's very, it's having difficulty doing so verbally, you know, do so written, send an email. Like if they read it, they read it. If they don't, you know, whatever, but at least you started to advocate for yourself slowly and in a way that made you feel most comfortable. I would also prepare myself prior to meetings to ensure that I was comfortable enough speaking on something that I was very uncomfortable doing, whether that could be, for example, asking for a promotion or getting my name into a particular project that I was very passionate about. And having that conversation with my manager was like scary for me. Great. I would practice beforehand what I wanted to say, uh, prepare myself for that meeting prior to doing so. So then when I went into that situation, I felt, I felt a little bit more comfortable 
at least in the words that were coming out of my mouth <laughs> and, you know, faking it till I made it out of it. So I would, I would say I'll recommend also doing that. It's just preparing yourself for those community, for those conversations. And then lastly, affirmations became huge for me in that saying to myself, hey, you're smart, you're worthy, you're obviously in this space, not because, um, you know, you, because they just handed it to you on a silver platter, but because you actually work hard to make that happen for yourself. Having those kind of conversations with myself, writing those down, made me also view my advocating for myself less difficult because I felt like I was worthy of having those conversations of advocating for myself, of getting that promotion um, where previously maybe I didn't, uh, I didn't feel that way for X, Y, Z or even. Yeah, no, I think that's, that's great advice. Definitely. And that's one of the things I do. I do write down the different projects, the different deliverables that I've worked on because annual, annual performance comes once a year. And then when you're trying to evaluate yourself, you forget, you forget all the things you, you did, right? So to the folks listening, definitely start tracking everything you're doing and all the deliverables and results you're creating for your company, because come annual review, you want to pull those out and uh, start listing them. <laughs> yeah. yeah. You have to get your receipts out. <laughs> so yeah. conversations, the promotions, things like that come up, then you can say, you know, here are the ways I contributed. And this is why I deserve this. Uh, it's not like you're making it up. It's not like, you know, you, this kind of came out of the blue. It's like, no, I have concrete facts here that I contributed to this company. And there's no denying that also. Right. You're bringing about those all, you're bringing into those conversations things that you actually legit did. And it's not like it's all in your head that you, you know, that you made up. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Great advice. Patricia, is there anything else that you want to share with our audience? Where can they connect with you? Follow your story, follow all the great advice you give on career, money, and how to stay empowered. <laughs> yeah, so you can definitely follow me at latinos.empowered on Instagram. I'm excited to connect with everybody uh, in that space. It's also, I would say, my safe haven. Uh, I mean, it's, I feel like it's a safe haven for all other Latinos and, you know, immigrants where people can openly share their current struggles, how they resonate with, you know, some of the things that I share, or even just asking questions that people are shy to ask in other platforms, but feel like comfortable doing so and stepping forward in this platform. So that's what I hope people join me there. Awesome. Thank you so much, Patricia. I really enjoyed this conversation. Thank you for having me. Just wanted to take a break here to share that Peruvians of USA now has an online store. Help us spread the message that El Mejor Amigo de un Peruano es Otro Peruano by visiting our online store. We also have feminine versions that said La Mejor Amiga de una Peruana es Otra Peruana or gender neutral versions. This could be the perfect gift for a Peruvian in your life. Visit the link on the episode notes or link in bio. All right, back to the episode. Thank you for listening to Peruvians of USA. If you like the show, be sure to subscribe and review an Apple podcast. It lets other Peruvians find the show. If you want to hear more from me, you can follow me on Instagram at Peruvians of USA. I'm looking forward to connecting with you there. All right. Talk to you soon. Ciao.